0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. It's going to be a fantastic episode. We've got John McAvoy. Now, John McAvoy is a man who was serving a big lumpy prison sentence and while on the inside in a maximum security prison was doing a bit of rowing, only discover he is the world record-breaking marathon distance rower. What an incredible story. He's gone on to use his own example i'm using my own example to inspire kids and is involved in some fantastic causes to help people that have not had opportunities or people that are still as we like to say those of us in the know people that are still behind the door yeah it's a bit slang i know because i know a lot about prisons yeah i know quite a lot about them uh to inspire them and to help people turn their lives around it's a truly fascinating story you're gonna love listening to john mcavoy it's um Really unusual story. You're going to be into it. I was into it. He's pretty intense. He's pretty cool. He's an inspirational character from the gangland underworld who becomes a rower in prison. Come on. What do you want for your money? And this is free. I've got a couple of good bits of news for you, actually. One is Mentors is out. It's doing really well. Get it. Get it on Audible or get it on as an audio book. It's doing really well as an audio book. Or get it as an actual book. It's selling well. I'm pleased with it. It's in a bestseller list. It's always nice to be in a list, isn't it? So uh, get it if you uh, want to. Also, I'm going to be doing Recovery Live. I'm going to be doing a version of Recovery Live. I would say under the skin live, but it's not really under the skin because there won't be a guest. You'll be like the guests, and we'll be solving your problems. So keep listening and watching our social media feeds for information of where you can come and see me live, exploring the ideas of personal development, self-help, new approaches to spirituality and ways that we can honestly and humorously change ourselves. And by changing ourselves, can we change the world? That doesn't matter, does it really? That's not our problem at this stage. Although we definitely will. Thanks for listening to Megan Jane Crabb last week. Talking about body positivity and anorexia. Check out some of the comments that we've had. Emily Rose Davenport says, This was so helpful to me. I've never considered the idea of categorising and moralising food as good and bad and the effect that has on yourself. Great episode. Thank you. Yeah, I thought about that as well. It makes me think about how I do it with all behaviours. Like, oh, I'm bad. I've not gone for a walk. I've not done my exercise. I'm not showing my shoes. Melanie Darling goes. I really loved it, Russ. The uh, episode with Megan. I've been a fan of both of yours for years, and I've had my own difficult journey with learning to love and trust my body. Body Posy Panda is that her full name on Twitter? Body Posy Panda. And those like her have no question saved me from a life of putting my physical appearance before anything else. Well, that's good, isn't it? Nadia says Russell Brand can simply read ads, and that would be enough to entertain me. The rest of the podcast was good too. <laughs> She prefers the ads. Usually slapstick humour has visuals, but the chair malfunction was hilarious, even without that. Thank you, Nadja, for bringing up moments of humiliation for me and the bit with the adverts. Although I have decided to really enjoy doing the adverts um, and I hope it comes across. Elaine Rush, that's great, thanks Russ and Megan I see so many body positivity posters shouted down told they're glorifying obesity etc so many people still don't get it we're more than our physical bodies but all deserve to feel at least okay about ours that is the main message isn't it whoever you are, whatever you look like you deserve to feel good and connected and not diminished on account of physical appearance or trying to aspire to some imagined ideal certainly physically because I think imagined ideals can be quite useful spiritually and emotionally like an ideal of say peace and kindness oh look at this from Batman Loves Ivy thank you so much beautiful girl his words or her words not mine for speaking on behalf of us all you're very, you're very brave Megan thank you too Russell for helping others try to understand what a person with anorexia goes through you're my beacon of hope Russell I love you very much handsome man thank you very much I appreciate the compliment Although, as we know, it doesn't matter what we look like, right? That's what we've learned. But I'm still getting a little rush of approval from that. Okay, so you're going to enjoy John McAvoy' incredible story of an extreme life. A man brought up in the world of organized crime, finding himself starred up into a maximum security adult prison, where inside he discovers that he has the capacity to become a world champion rower. Uh, Hang on to your hats, Settle down into your seat, strap in, paint your toenails, buy a ticket to go to Swansea and enjoy Under the Skin. <laughs> Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no, successful that's, route. Yes, that's,
1: that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time? The history, we're told. Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. John, thanks very much for coming on this show. I'm fascinated to talk to you. In fact, since I've known you coming on, I've been telling my like mates and now I'm talking to this uh, John McAvoy. Uh, you're going to enjoy this podcast. You've got to check it out because this is, you know, when you've heard about someone remotely, you may not like you sort of get the hours a bit wrong. But this is how I, how I understand your story from what I've gathered. You was put away for a serious bit of time. You got gym privileges. And then when you were working out in the gym, something was discovered that changed the course of your life. And there's a remarkable story. Will you say it out for the people that are not
1: familiar with your story so we can all be on so, the same page? So should I go back to when I was a kid? Go on then. So I'll go all the way back to um to childhood. Um, One of sort of, there's been profound moments in my life that's that's obviously led to where I am today. I would say one of the biggest things when I was a child was finding out my, um, my dad died. Um, I grew up in, in sort of South London and my mum and my sister brought me up. So I never had a male role model in my life as a, as a little kid. And, and I thought it was normal just to have your mum and sister bring you up. And it's obviously when you start going to school, primary school, Pe- uh, pupils used to sort of tease me that I didn't have um that didn't have a dad. Like, where's your dad? And I didn't have one. So I went home and I asked my mum and my mum explained to me that my actual dad died before I was born. And he had um, a massive heart attack in bed next to my mum when he was 38 years old. And my mum was eight months pregnant with me. And she explained to me from a young age what death was. And, and I sort of had an understanding that one day I would not be alive. Mm. From, from this is a bit like from childhood, and then that then sparked something off inside me, where I started developing this. This I can only class it as like an obsession as a kid, an interest in history. And my mum used to get me these magazines at and um, at the shop called Discovery Booklets, and every month would be a different part of history. And I'd read these these booklets and make the puzzles about Napoleon and World War One and World War Two. And I remember thinking to myself that people were still talking about these men and women hundreds of years after they were dead and they had achieved something with their life. Like whilst that part of their life while they were on earth, they had done something and people remembered them when they were dead. And, and I was too young to obviously understand the word, but that word was legacy. Like they had achieved something with their life. And, and the reason I'm sort of telling this is because like from being a little kid, like I wanted to achieve something with my life. What then sort of manifested itself out as being a boy and being little, um, you, 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 when, you got, when you get older, you, you obviously have dreams about what you want to do. And and I don't know where this come from, but I developed this obsession with British Telecom as a boy, like obsession. I'd watched the adverts on Channel 3, and then when my mum used to take me around to my aunties and uncles' houses, I used to run around all the rooms, and obviously everyone had a at that point a BT landline in their house. And then when we were in the car driving anywhere, I'd look out the window and obviously you see these BT phone boxes. And I asked my uncle one day, I said, how much money does British Telecom make? And he said, they make billions. And from that moment, that was what my dream was. When I got older, I wanted to own British Telecom. And, and obviously adults used to laugh at me, but honestly, Russell, I was absolutely driven as a kid to, to, to be a billionaire. I wanted to own British Telecom. And then when I got to eight years old, Uh, A man come into my life, and this is why I really understand about role models, and good and bad that come into your life. I was eight years old. Um, We lived at Crystal Palace Park Road in South East London, and this man come into our home, and I I will never forget to the day that I die, he was was immaculately dressed when my mum opened the front door, and he come in, he had a big gold watch on, um, just white teeth, black hair, and I was just in awe of him. I was literally in awe. And he went into the living room and I followed my mum and my sister in and he asked me to go and make him a cup of tea. And I was like, obviously, eight. I've gone in, I've made him this cup of tea, i have give it back to him. And I'm just sitting there in awe of him and he's talking to my mum and my sister. And when um, when he was leaving our flat, he patted me on the head and he gave me a 20 pound note and he was the first adult to ever give me paper money. And and I was just I was just in awe of this man. Like, and I was like, wow. Like, obviously, I'm thinking about going to the shop and spending the money on sweets. Few shares in BT. <laughs> yeah, few, few shares. I, I didn't have that investment mindset at the time. I was more concerned about buying some uh, pick and mix at uh, Woolworths. And um, and when when he left, I asked my mum who he was because no, Mal had ever, or man, really ever come into our home other than family members. And mm-hmm. my mum explained to me that that was her ex-husband and she was married to him before she was married to my dad. And she got married to him when she was 18 years old. And my sister was actually his real daughter. And he came come back into my mum's life, not in a relationship, but in the context of taking my sister out because she was 16 and he didn't have a son. I didn't have a dad. So when he used to pick my sister up on a Saturday, he would take me out. And, and, he, and he brought me up like I was his son. And he, he had fast cars. Again, watches, money, always talking about money, growing up as a kid, and he would take me out to these restaurants. And and as I got a little bit older, I spent more and more time with him, and he started taking me out and not my sister. And then he was taking me out to these restaurants and bars with men that were like 30, 40, 50 years old, and, and everything was about money. That was it. Money, money, money. Houses, cars, watches. He always used to tell me he was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old. And obviously then, you're looking at these people, and... And they were people that I, I was starting to get more and more drawn to because my mum was working as a florist and she was earning like minimum wage working in a floristry. And these men were talking about being multi-millionaires and flats in the Champs-Élysées in Paris and driving around in Mercedes and all these, all this, like the, the things that when you're a kid and you, you want that through owning British Telecom, suddenly like your outlet to getting it is, is ve- you, you can see a path. And it was only when I was 12 years old that when my granddad passed away and we cleared my granddad's flat out, my granddad had these big envelopes and I um I went into his drawer and I found this this big envelope and I opened it up and my granddad had kept all his newspaper clippings and it transpired that my mum's ex-husband was one of the most sort of infamous, prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. Um, he was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old. The police tried to kill him two times, like shoot him two times. He had five acquittals at the Old Bailey. Um, and then I started then connecting up all the dots so all them men that I was going out with, um, always talking about like uh, the hatred towards the system, how corrupt it was, the politicians, the banks. Mm. Um, I then started connecting up those dots. It proper South London
0: gangsters and bank robbers. Yeah,
1: it, it, and, and again, what then happened to me... When I,
0: is this, like 2000? How old no, you were you, like 20 so, years no,
1: ago? Yeah, no, yeah, this was, sorry, this was uh, in the late 90s. Yeah, So it was like 98, 99, 90, yeah, 98, 97, 99. And then um, and sort of, I kind of then um, started going to school and my authority become my teachers. That's what my authority became. So their hatred towards the police and the system, my hatred towards was was my teachers because they were my authority and I started truanting from school. Um, I didn't have any respect for my teachers whatsoever. And then obviously I got caught when I was 15 with a knife at school. Mm. Um, and I remember my head of year, Mr. Vickers, which was a fun, amazing man, amazing man. He obviously knew what my home life was because he knew about the the stuff because it was in the national newspapers, and he knew that was what I was going home to every day. So, because him, your mum and
0: uh, her first husband was back together by this time. They
1: they wasn't back together, but he he played a part in my mum's life. He's Just taking yeah, out your sister, sister to that, hanging yeah. out with you, yeah. introducing you to yeah. all these faces. Yeah. So
0: you're like, when you're a young man, you're an ambitious young man or you have a sense of greatness, which you can only equate with economic wealth through, you know, the unlikely acquisition of an international telecoms company, or then more latterly crime and being around and, and having those kind of role models. And so I, I know that you
1: go off track as a result of this. Tell me what happened, how did you end up going inside? So when I was, um, when I was 16, I left school, um, I feel embarrassed to sat today, I, I went and bought a firearm and my, my stepdad found out and he then believed that I'd be safer committing crime with older criminals than I would be people of my age. I, I I bought a gun because buying a gun was just normal because it wasn't abnormal and I know it might sound annoying to the people listening to this but the life I was witness to as a kid, that was just a normal thing, people were always talking about firearms and, and I bought it for the sake of buying one so I had one and anyway, my stepdad found out so he believed that I'd be safer committing crime with older people. So I'd start going out, um, casing security vans, making deliveries mm. to um, building societies and banks and filling up security depots. And then I'd relay that information onto all the criminals. Um, again, being ambitious, I realised I wasn't going to become rich by making other people rich. So um, I went to conspire to commit a robbery and the police had an operation on me.
0: You were going to do that on your own even when you were like 16 years old? I, I was,
1: I, at this point, I was 18. Okay. And then um, I got arrested in an ambush. Um, attempted to go and rob a security van.
0: Where was it? Tell us, set the scene so, for us.
1: This sounds very dramatic. So what ended up happening? Um, me and a friend of mine mm. were um, we're going to conspire to rob this post office van out in Kent. Had you been watching it? And Did you yeah. have an
0: estimate of how much was in there and stuff? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We we, we had a sum of money. That we th- we probably thought. What did you again, We probably thought about forty, fifty thousand pounds. And again, eighteen years old. That's like you yeah. thought it was like a million pounds. And we parked the cars up the night before, and the police had obviously been watching us. We wasn't aware they were watching us. And then the next morning, when we went to go and do it, when the van was making delivery, I think it was a Tuesday morning, um, the police were following us. The robbery squad. Is this in London. This was just on the outskirts of London. Um, it's just on the border of London and Kent. Mm. And the, um, the 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 robbery squad were 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 following us, but from a distance. And apparently, I only found this out afterwards. Where the um, the the people that do like the DVLA roadside stops for no tax and stuff on the side of the road. Well, apparently they were doing this stop that morning and they were told not to stop my car and um, because it was under surveillance. But someone didn't realise and blew this whistle and pointed my car in and we end up um, basically having a car chase. And the normal police were chasing us and then obviously the, the robbery squad told the normal police to abort the chase because they were going to chase us because they had firearms. And, you were and, getting
0: arrested from all sorts of angles yeah, yeah. that's a, a traffic infringement <laughs> blaster about rob a robber post yeah. office man I, I, I don't
1: think the people with a traffic infringement really realised because it, apparently they got into a lot of trouble because they were told not to stop the car she was, and they uh, blew the whole operation under apart under surveillance yeah. you had
0: firearms in the vehicle yeah. what yeah. happens?
1: and then um, so I had a car chase and we uh, straight away I'm thinking I need to get out of the car before the helicopter gets out because I knew I'd definitely get arrested so we we have this car chase and then actually we got away Bolting into, yeah. Kentway, into we, the no, now we, we Kent, were you? No, now we went back into London. He's headed into town. And I remember I was jumping over all these garden fences. And, and at the time, like I was I was grossly overweight. Like, I never did any exercises at all as a kid, at all. And I can remember I could hardly breathe jumping over all these garden fences. And I was taking off my clothes to discard them in a bush and into this, like, river. And anyway, I got to this phone box. And I always used to um, tuck paper money into my sock. So if anything ever went wrong, I could always get a taxi to get home. I was always taught that by my stepdad. Always make sure you've got paper money hidden on you. So if something goes wrong, you can always get a train home or you can get a taxi or whatever. And I was in this phone box and I remember I heard this car screech up and I looked round and this massive guy, it was like a rugby player with a bald head, come running towards me with his firearm up. And obviously, I'm not making the connections that's a police officer because he had no police markings on him whatsoever. And I thought, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. And and then he started screaming, get down, get down. And then there was like loads of police started coming from everywhere. At the time, I didn't know they were police, but like loads of other men come and they dragged me out the phone box and they threw me on the floor. And then they said, John McAvoy, you're under arrest. And then I actually thought, oh, I'm not dead. I, it was a moment of relief. Mm. And then they got me back in the back of the police car. And then they kind of um, started to, uh, <laughs> they, they they made it abundantly clear how much information they knew what I was about to do. Because at that moment, I was pleading my innocence. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm getting fit for boxing. And, and obviously I wasn't because I I was so overweight, and um, they they took me to the police station, and then sort of that was where my journey, um, my life, then started to really go down a, a trajectory I never even thought it would go down. I go to court, I get remanded, and I'm 18 years at the time, 18 years old at the time, but the Metropolitan Police believed that I was such a high escape risk at such a young age, that I couldn't be kept in a young offenders. So if you're under the age of 21 years old, you can't be kept with male adult prisoners. But but maximum security doesn't exist in, in young offenders. Mm. So they did something, what they called starred me up. So because it was such an exceptional circumstance, that like I was category A at such a young age, they hadn't had to put me in an adult prison. So I got transferred to Milton Keynes as a category A inmate. Um they put me in a segregation unit there and then they said like this Why is Why did they do that? Because because of my stepdad was a big reason for it. They believed that so to be category A you have to you have to the, the authorities have to be able to demonstrate to the Ministry of Justice that you have the money means capability will and the access to firearms to be able to make a determined escape attempt from lawful custody and escape must be made impossible. So they believed that because of my stepdad and my links to the criminal underworld at such a young age That there was criminals there that would try to break me out of prison.
0: It's interesting listening to you because on one level you sound like very, like innocent, you know, like just a young man, like like you know, then you know, just a kid. And on the other hand, you had been like around guns and that and around crime and had a knife at school and all that and presumably sort of low-level crime was normalised in your environment and that it was for you inevitable that you were going into crime. So by the time you found yourself in that position that you were a- about to be put in a maximum security prison, did you feel, like, scared? And did you feel like, oh, right, yeah, look, I'm a criminal. How did it feel at that time?
1: Do you know what, um, like... Again, growing up, again, in the environment in which I was in, um, prison, I wasn't fearful of it. Like, most normal people would be quite frightened to go to prison because it's it's something so abnormal to them, um, having your freedom taken off you. But when you're growing up and uncles, cousins, stepdad, talking about prison, what they're like in prison, what prison's like... When I went in there, it was nothing to be fearful of, really. I w- I was I wasn't scared of the system. The system didn't hold any fear to me, um, like it would most normal people. Like you break the law, people don't break the law because they know it's morally wrong to break the law. But when you're growing up and you you have you you've got this you foster this hatred towards the system, that when you then get put inside it, it just increases. So before to me, like like I said, my school my school teachers were my system, mm. and that was my authority. When I went into prison, and suddenly the prison officers it was very real like prison officers are there it's reality like they're locking a metal door and they mm. represent what the system stands for um and and again like my hatred towards them and what it stood for um if they would ask me to sit down i'd stand up they said go left i go right and it was all about being sort of as anti-authority as i possibly right, could so
0: you weren't be. like a sweet compliant lad no, you've a no. right little pain in the arse. no
1: yeah I, but i was more it wasn't more physical it wasn't violence. Um, I was just much more sort of. I detested the system, and I, I I did everything I could to make it as difficult as I possibly could for them. So like, not give them my name and address when I was in there. They wanted me to do stuff like I won't go to work. I won't. I not mm. I, I was taught to believe when when you went into those environments, people that that changed were weak. That is what I was brought up as a kid. It was like people that went to prison and turned the, the trajectory of their life around and went down a different road, mm. and they were rehabilitated they were deemed to be weak in the world in which i grew up in as a kid well this is the thing i might have a bit of
0: a problem with is that i don't feel like it's binary
1: i feel like the system is
0: corrupt i feel like the most authority does exist primarily to control i do not think that the state is ultimately benevolent people might go oh you'd rather live in england than like under isil or like in some sort of corrupt communist country and that's probably true but when you talked about like sort of uh, hanging out in South London with the crew that your uh, stepdad was with and they go like we hate the system and the government's corrupt, I, no problem, I completely agree with it. Like it, for me, I don't like, advocate sort of violence or that kind of criminality but I don't neither do I think that the state is automatically benign I'm sure there's but like I know people that work in prisons that are really really lovely and are sort of sweet people but I've also encountered people that work for the police that I feel like maybe got off on having that authority and power as well as people that work for the police force that are really lovely and decent so you know, for me, it's like your journey is a fascinating one because you come from a position of like where, you, you know, as you say, crime and, and your authoritarian a- attitudes were normalised, standardised. So when you find yourself in a serious situation of a maximum, maximum security prison, you can default into are just going to be difficult, non-compliant, truculent, little pain in the ass of a person while I'm here. Whereas I, I still am 43 now. it's i very scared of going to prison I like you know the idea of losing personal liberty it scares me and even times when I've been arrested and held in cells I don't like it i don't like it i don't like being told what to do yeah. i don't like being like so the idea of like once that's like all oh, right this is happening now oh that idea that freaks me out so you go there you have like because you've been sort of mentored to handle it because you've been around people to say this is how you act in prison and this is what to do and you presumably i suppose you even in a place like Milton Keynes prison you've had there was there people that you knew and people that knew that you would be there but going oh, i know your stepdad and that it will be that, all right. that is
1: exactly what not happening and then what that did um, that sort of exacerbated the issue because as a, as a young man and I'm, I'm growing up, I'm 19 years old and you're having like men, grown men lavish praise on you that you're in one of these environments with them as an equal in a maximum security prison as a kid mm-hmm. and and even prison officers treating you differently because of it. Like prison officers did. They wasn't, they. it's kind of, it's unoutshadows word what I'm about to say but they respected you mm-hmm. because there was like a hierarchy of crime in, in, in their eyes and some, not all, some eyes that yeah. you was in there for like committing armed robbery. And you was at the top end of, of a criminal. Yeah.
0: That's almost like an honourable 60s crime. Yeah. yeah Guns, yeah. Yeah. glamour. It's not like nonsense and, yeah. and, and, and <laughs> financial crime and sex crimes, like that sort of the array of disgusting and ugly offences. It's sort of like, well, this is, you know, there is like always the myths yeah. of Robin Hood and will And, exist. and, I, and I,
1: even to the degree where some of the prison officers used to want to get, when you would go on trial, they would have to accompany you to court and they would want to get put on your trial because they found it more fascinating than maybe going on a trial with t- a terrorist case. Mm. So they would want to come on your trials. Um, but that, like you said, when I went to that environment, that did, um, it fostered uh, sort of that mentality even more so inside me. And after a year of being there, I went to the Old Bailey. I was in courtroom number three and I never forget, I was I was sentenced by Judge Goddard. And, um, and this
0: is trial for conspiracy. This is
1: conspiracy to rob. And I... And basically, I got offered a, um, a what they classed as a it was a it was a plea bargain. It was to save money, and they they offered me this, this this plea bargain, and I accepted it the day. What b- was it? So it was I went guilty to conspiracy to commit robbery on that day, basically. Mm. Um, and, and then what did they drop? For? They dropped. They actually dropped cases where I genuinely didn't even do them. Right. But, but it was. But I genuinely didn't. Like, That's not like I mean tra- about the yeah. system. They chat tra- They chatted tra- tra- <laughs> a lot of mud. Um. Anyway, they dropped these. They dropped these offences, and then that. Then I was potentially looking at sixteen years in prison, and to me, as an eight-year-old kid, that was like the end of. The, like it was. That hit me because I, I thought sixteen years. Still be there now, no? Well, no, I, I would. have probably. I would have served eight years of it. But if uh, at that moment when you when your solicitor turns around and says. I've never been to prison before to this point. And he says, you're looking at 16 years. I'm like, I can't do it. And he said, no, you're looking at 16 years. So they offered me, they gave me five years. And when I got sentenced, I remember laughing at all the police in the footwell. Because at that point, I worked the mathematics out. I did a year. And I thought I'd have like a year and a half before I'd be out. Ah. So they, they transferred me back to Woodhill. And then they moved me to um, to a Young Offenders then because then they downgraded me from a Category A prisoner to a normal Young Offender. Because
0: it's not worth escaping for no, like that kind the, of yeah, sentence.
1: The, the, the length of time isn't justifiable enough. It had to be, you have to be serving a minimum of 10 years mm. or sentenced to 10 years to be able to justify keeping because it costs so much money. So what
0: Young Offenders, where did you go? So
1: I went to Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. I was there. So everything changed. I remember I went on a normal prison van. I turn up at reception. Before prison officers call me John, um suddenly... Um, it's McAvoy.
0: I've heard that look, yeah. the young offenders institutes are worse than adult prisons. Is that true?
1: Yes, they are. I, I, I get why. Uh, there, there's a there there a are rougher reasons. environment, yeah. testosterone, yeah. Yes. young men yeah. Yeah. tearing yeah. each other up. Yeah, hundred yeah. Yeah. percent. So I go. I went to through the reception area, and obviously I thought, Do you know what? It's part of the game. I understand I'm here now. Like that they they they, they, they 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 it was like they were deliberately trying to press the buttons like to to wind me up, and then they put me on a wing. And then um, and then they come and open up my door and there was like five or six prison officers there and they said they wanted all my clothes and at this time you're still in prison issue clothes and I said what do you mean they went you're you're we're gonna you you've been classed as a, an escapeless prisoner because you've been in a Mao adult prison as a category A prisoner so we need to put you in this yellow tracksuit so the prison officers can identify you as being a high escape risk of this prison so obviously my hatred I was like There's, you're not taking my clothes and they said well we're gonna nick you then and in prison like nickings. It's like you, when you break prison rules. So they put me in a segregation unit. Um, I went in front of the governor the next day and I and and basically I was charged with re- refusing a law for order. So he gave me seven days confined to cell. So you were kept in a segregation cell. You got a cardboard um, chair, cardboard sort of uh, table, a bed, a metal sink and toilet did, uh, attached to one unit. So the seven days was up. At this point, they did take my clothes um they they said to me when they open up the door you're you're gonna go and be a wing cleaner and i said there's no way i'm going on that wing cleaning up your shit every day and they said and he smiled and he said you refuse another law for order and i said i am and he said you're nicked again for refusing to be a wing cleaner he put me back in front of the governor again
0: how are you feeling inside when you're doing all when you're making all these decisions why at this point is it why do you feel that he your default position is non-compliance
1: I think it made me feel like I was taking back control. You had some power. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't make me do stuff they wanted me to do. So, How did you feel inside? Do you feel alive? Do you feel numb? No. Do you feel afraid? I didn't feel afraid. I felt... Uh, yeah, obviously, you've got the uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, it was only when... What, what, what I can remember quite clearly is when I went back in front of the governor and I got the seven days confined to cell again, which would have meant two weeks in segregation day he, he kind of smiled at me and he said like you will you kind of will bend to the system and he and he smiled and, and I remember going back to that cell and one thing I did do Russell when I went to prison and I probably didn't touch in the beginning um, I remember my my uncle spent 25 years in prison and I asked him once how he didn't become institutionalized and he said I never disconnected from the real world so he would listen to the radio he'd read newspapers and he'd read books and I took that strategy on myself whilst I was in prison at the beginning. So I would listen to the radio, I would read newspapers, and I would read books. And a librarian used to come around with a trolley, and you was allowed to take two books off or two two books off a week or two or three. And I remember, a coincidence would be, I started reading Nelson Mandela's book in Robin Island. And there was a passage in that book at that time when I was a kid. And it was about him smoking tobacco in Robin Island. And he realized that the prison officers, he was using that as a punishment to take away from him. So we stopped smoking. So I thought in my mind, if you think by putting me in this room, you're gonna punish me, I'll take it away from you. So then when they asked me to go back up on the wing, um, I wouldn't go, I said, I'm not going. And then they were a bit like, what do you mean you're not going? I said, I'm not going back up there. And, and I'd literally spent the next 365 days of my life on earth. <laughs> I look back on it now, and it, like in the retrospect, I look back and what a waste, because what I've done like this year of my life, and and I literally stayed in that room twenty four hours a day. I didn't um I didn't take exercise because they used no it.
0: exercise. What so just people bring you just get bought three so meals you, 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 and you're would, in you that will, room. How, will, will, how big is the room?
1: It was about six six by six by ten foot big. Ooh. Um, but ex- you
0: get no exercise time, no right, outside time. I,
1: I wouldn't have any exercise, so I wouldn't go outside. So I refused my exercise periods on the yard. But this is where um like I this is where my process and journey started of physical activity mm. um because. I'm locked up in this room for 24 hours a day. I'm reading books. Um I'm listening to the radio and I'm reading um newspapers and I started I don't know what even motivated me to do it. I started basically doing these cell circuits in my prison cell and I'd get my get this chair and stick it to the end of the um the cell because the it was like a Victorian cell so you had these like little slots um that let the air in off the windows because they was very small how big the window clips could open to let air clean air in. So to get a bit of fresh air as I was doing these step-ups, I'd put my chair there and I started doing burpees, step-ups, press-ups. And some of them I didn't even know the names of the exercises at the beginning. And like I said earlier on in the interview, I was grossly overweight. Like if I showed you a picture of me as a kid, you probably wouldn't believe it was me now. Overweight, chubby, unfit. And then I just started off doing these exercises and then I'd done one exercise after the other and i put it together as a circuit. And as the weeks and months progressed, I built up to doing like a thousand of each exercise and I can't explain to you like, it made me feel like a human being. And and, and again, um, I, I, I did a talk at Nottingham University to some criminal psychologists, and they was interested about about my journey, obviously through sport in prison and how it turned my life around. And one of them said to me afterwards, what you actually probably did was again, it was about you taking control of your body. It was about you saying you can't stop me from doing this. And this is my body and and it made me feel alive Russell like when I would do those circuits in that cell I felt like a human being I felt alive
0: quite a lot of um like spiritual ideas that are about denial about uh, like the idea of asceticism that the more things that you're attached to in the mere material world the weaker you are if you're attached to your reputation and what other people think of you that's a vulnerability if you need food or alcohol or drugs in any degree you know that these things make you vulnerable so through like the circumstances of your life you found yourself in a place where an ability to deny yourself things and to live within limited means and then to sort of implement your own kind of practices your own physical practices was a way of like yeah maintaining control of your life but also finding a. it sounds like you found a different way of connecting with reality it's a very it's a really unusual thing because i suppose most people deteriorate in that situation, like mental health, like, you know, when I think about what endurance means in like an athletic context or even in a life context, being able to endure different situations, I feel like, well, what is that? What is It's a kind of a, a faith, a kind of certainty that things are going to be all right to be able to endure, to be able to abide? And like, the, obviously, like, what I feel like we should get to, John, because I feel like it's an important point, is the point where you break some world records in a prison gym because I feel like this is pivotal because I feel like this point you've given us some good backstory and it's like a, a fascinating youth and an amazing experience. And it's given me a good understanding of where you're at psychologically. Uh, and also it has some weird, interesting parallels with sort of spiritual life that I'm interested in and we'll hopefully discuss later. But I want to know how you end up in this gym breaking records.
1: So it has to go back but no John it, it, no, stop going back it, it has to go back because this is quite an important part by it. we can the go moment... in different
0: orders it doesn't have to be chronological <laughs> do a bit about the record go back a bit we can go okay, back right. to the 1970s so,
1: so, the, so, the, re- so the record so the, so the way I started my journey on, the, on a rowing machine was
0: yeah it's like Jaws isn't it people have got yeah. to see the shark they got, they got, to, see, they got to see the Where's ending see the
1: shark <laughs> 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 so I went down a gym in Loudon Grange a prison gym and there was a, an inmate that was a was a little bit overweight and when you're in prison you only get limited to a certain amount of gym sessions per week so you get free right per wing and i went down there and and the reason they do that is because you can't cross wings so because there's a lot of separation in prison because of gangs mm. so once they know you're on that wing there's no fighting they know that's a safe wing but if you mix wings together you might get one gang there one gang there they start fighting so they keep you segregated but every time I went down to gym, this, this guy, Mickey, was on this rowing machine and he had gym like seven days a week. And I went up to him and I asked him, I said, how come you've got so much gym? And he said, I'm raising um, some money for a children's hospice. And he said, if you say to the prison officers, you want to do that, they'll let you come down and they'll let you sort of come down in seven days a week. So I asked, they they said yes. And I went and got some sponsorship off some of the inmates on the wing. They sponsored me a pound 50 pence and it's for a children's hospice in, in Nottingham. And I gave the sponsorship form to the uh, the head of the PE department, Craig, and he said, "Right, bang, there you go." Gave me the note. Then that was that allowed me to walk off the wing and go down to the gym. So I was 26 years old at this point. I got on the round machine for the first time. I didn't know what I was doing, but I went through I went through a process where events happened in my life where I wanted to get out of prison, and and I and I often use this analogy that. I come to that point in my life where I didn't want to be a criminal anymore. And I wanted to change the direction of my life. Mm. But I was trapped. I was physically trapped. Like, I believe everyone in life has choice. We, you have choice. You you can get up. If, if you didn't like me now, you can get up and walk out of the room. We have choice. And, and again, it felt to me, it's like being a crack addict, locked in a crack den, and not being able to escape, but you're trying to get off drugs. Mm. So... I was like that. I wanted to turn my life around. I wanted to change the direction of my life, but I'm stuck in prison around what I would class as being very negative I feel like this is
0: something you can only realise
1: retrospectively. I don't think you at the
0: time can term it in that
1: way. No, no, no. What I did do, when I was, there was a conversation that happened when an event in my life happened in prison, which we can go back to in a minute, and the next following morning I was seeing a communal eating area and these guys were talking about when they got out of prison they were going they were going they were going to do this this person was a police informer they wanted to stab this person out. and I thought I cannot be around these people no yeah. more I cannot listen to this stuff no more and then I went down to the gym and I got on the ram machine and when I first got on that ram machine at 26 years old I remember looking at those numbers on that screen and everyone left me alone for 2 hours no one even spoke to me prison officers prisoners and I, I, it transcended me out of prison. It literally transcended me out of prison. Obviously, I didn't realize about endorphins and make, feeling good through physical activity, but at that moment in time, I just felt amazing. Like it was like I went through this process. It was like I could have been anywhere in the world. I could have been ran across the Atlantic. I could have been, in a, I could have been in a gym somewhere in the country. Ran. I was not in prison. Hmm. And then what I'd done, this become then a habit. And then the next day, I went down again, rode twenty miles. And the next day, I rode down twenty miles. So I rode the first million meters for this hospice in a month. And then I thought, if I keep doing this every month, this is going to help me deal with the rest of my prison sentence until I get released. So I asked the prison officer if I could row another million. He said, yes. And then I rode another million, three months. And then one day, a prisoner said to me, by chance, he went, you do realise 5 million metres is 5,000K, and that's equivalent from rowing from Britain to the United States of America, across the Atlantic. And I thought it was quite a cool thing to say yeah. I'd achieve something. So I asked Craig, the prison officer, if I could do it again, who headed up the P, P department and and he agreed he said yep just keep raising money and i i deeply believe in destiny and i think in life things happen for a reason and one day um there was this incredible human being that that changed my life forever called darren davis was he was a prison officer and i was on this ram machine in this gym in nottingham as a prisoner and he walked behind me one day and he looked over my shoulder and just as I'd finished the workout, the screen froze. said so it tells you how far you've rode and how quick. And he went, my God, you are quick. And and, and I went, yeah, really. And again, you're in, you're in prison, you're in this little bubble, it's, it's not reality. It's a, it's a constructed environment in which you're placed in. I didn't have any comprehension of what was good and what was bad. I'd never been around athletes in my life. I, I, I basically served nearly my whole adult life in a prison. And he went away, and he come back a couple of days later when I was in the prison gym, and he literally handed me all these sheets of A4 paper, and they had all these world and British records. So he
0: went, Darren went
1: and checked it yeah. all out, done it all for me, did all the research. He so must have just thought, bloody, yeah. that's quick. It's quick, and then he he come and gave me the paper with with all these records on, and I remember that, Russell. I looked at them, and I was like, they can't be real. Because by I, then you'd done like five million. I done I done about four, just over four million meters. But what would that? What i had done... Plus, you've been doing them
0: burpees. Burpees
1: in the cell, and what I had done that I didn't even intentionally realise to do, I had basically woken up this ability in my body that I didn't even know I had since I was a kid. Like I was absolutely shit at PE at school. Like I would, and I'm not, I'm not judging. You. I'll show you a picture after this podcast finishes. I was playing it on your phone. Um, what I thought, was your chubby? I was pretty chubby. <laughs> I've got a photo of oh. me, but then I haven't got on to break any world records for <laughs> rowing, so it's less impressive. And I, I was, I was just. Uh, if you went back to my PT just now, I was probably, I'd have probably been ranked as one of the worst. No athletes good at my like school. if you had to do cross country run nope, or it's long distance. Not in the football team. No, nope, nope. I. If I was a chubby kid that get put in goal. I would. I was literally yeah, I was that bad at, <laughs> at, sport, and then I had woken up this ability in that prison gym, and Darren had spotted it, and then when he gave me those pieces of paper, I remember going back to my cell, and it, it, it kind of planted a seed in my head. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to ask him if I can try to do one of these records. And I asked him.
0: So he goes. Oh, so Darren, uh, what's his name? Darren Davis. Darren Davis. He sh- he comes back and he goes, look, this is the what? What are the records that he brought back on them bits of paper? So they
1: were. So basically, it was every record from one kilometer all the way up to the longest continuous row. And when you were looking at them, did you think, fuck
0: <clears> it, well, I can do some of these? I could
1: already break through. You I were could, already I could were re- doing. I was all, I, but I didn't realize. That's why when I laughed because I said, they can't be real," because I, I was breaking them. Like I could break them at that moment. And and anyway, I asked Which ones could you break? Uh the 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 marathon I was like I was Is touching, marathon twenty
0: six miles like with twenty six
1: miles, exactly the same. So it was it was already like touch and go. I knew I knew basically but by rowing the twenty K or sorry by rowing the thirty two K, which was twenty miles, I already knew that I was already on pace to break that whole marathon. Because obviously I was rowing that distance nearly every single day. So because I was rowing it, I knew the splits I needed to hold to just continue the extra sort of uh the extra six miles. And, they, the one kilometer and the one kilometre and the 10,000 metres. And he then, I asked him if I could do it. He went away. And again, there was a, there was a governor of the prison called Gareth Sands. Gareth Sands was, was a deeply Christian man. And I, did, I wasn't, I wasn't like, privy to this conversation. It was only afterwards that Darren had this conversation with him. Darren said, look, there's this prisoner, John McAvoy. I, I truly believe if we allow him the opportunity to try to do this record, it could be the thing that changes his life. And Gareth said, yeah, he can do it. So then Darren went away to the people that officiate the records. He explained the situation, me being a prisoner and being a prison officer. He explained- Who officiates the records then? So it would. So normally you would have to do it in a public environment where it was witnessed or I'd do it in a competition. So again, in a public environment. And obviously I couldn't do either. So I couldn't do it in a public setting. So Darren explained that to them. They said- as long as I had two independent verifying witnesses, which would be prison officers, that would sit with me and watch me do it and just sign, obviously, to say that I've done it and that I was doing it as a lightweight man, so under 75 kilo, So they had to weigh me, take a photograph of me on the scales to then send all that information off and then they would verify the records.
0: What's the significance of your weight? Is there, There's different categories, like yeah, boxing or something. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's just normally rowing, it's light and heavy. So anything under 75 kilos as a, as a male, you're lightweight. Anything over, it's just you're heavyweight. Um, and then the disparity in power output is massive with a 16 stone man in, in relation to me being 11 stone. They've got more strength. And the first record I attempted to break was for the marathon. And I remember I had to um, use sort of um, uh, sugar granules. Do you know, like pure sugar granules because I couldn't have energy gels because I was, I was in prison. <laughs> so we had to put them in my beaner bottles and stuff and, and we'd, I, I would eat them and drink them as I was going through this road to get energy in me. Um, and Darren started talk, sort of teaching me a little bit about sports nutrition. Anyway, well, I broke the first record for the marathon by seven minutes. and, and this off. And this was what the most broke profound moment. broke by seven minutes. This is what the most profound moment, Russell, was I remember when I broke that record, what I realized at that moment, what I'd gone back to when I was a kid about my legacy and about achieving something with my life, I always made that connection between that and money. And I thought that is what legacy and achievement was. It was all just money. It was all about goods and about making lots of money. And the more money you had, that was what your worth was in the world. That was, your, that, was the, that was the indication of your success. When I broke that record, everything I'd ever wanted as a kid to have, I felt it in that moment, breaking that record. That not being average, the achieving something, the doing something that not a lot of other people could do. And, and it made me feel amazing. And it- Like and
0: want a cry didn't make you-
1: it did. It was quite emotional. It was quite emotional. Right? When, I, when I look back on it now, it was it, it was it, it was just feeling amazing. You I like felt, connected your essence. I just felt amazing. I felt amazing. It, fe- it felt like I found something I was genuinely good at. It's beautiful. I, I, and I feel like as well, because again, it does have an effect on you. When 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 I realised when I wanted to change the trajectory of my life, I looked at my life and I I hadn't achieved anything with what that little boy wanted to do he was eight years old. I was losing on an unimaginable scale in prison. I was selfish. I was consumed by greed. Mm. That was my existence up to 26 years old, and then I wanted to put amends to that, and I wanted to sort of achieve something positive in my life. And then, and when I found out I was good at sport, I thought that would be the thing to to make me feel like that.
0: Yeah. Well, what tell me uh, what was just to, to do the brass
1: tax a little bit. What was the record previously like that you? Uh, it was so I did two hours and thirty two minutes, and I think it was originally something like two hours and f- two oh, hours and thirty eight yeah. minutes.
0: Amazing.
1: So like you and Darren are in there, and
0: that moment happens. <coughs> if you're finishing it, it's two thirty two. Hmm. So tell me what happens after you've done
1: that. What? So then, um, that then really planted the seed. And my dream. That people
0: that moment. that, that like, you've got going record books now, right? Yeah, nice it's all, on the it's all online now.
1: and stuff. Yet yeah, it's all there. Is it still your record? It, the marathon is. Yeah, the British record. I've sadly lost all the world records though. They've all been taken over the years. Like one of um, I set one world record for the long. For, sorry, the most amount of distance road in 24 hours, and I rode 263 and a half thousand meters in 24 hours. And, he, and a young guy at Harvard University, um, he broke it by 120 something meters. It was literally like two strokes on a ram machine over 24 hours. And I I was reading all the blogs and stuff that they posted about it. And he went well in front of me at halfway. So he really, he was decimating my record. And then he exponentially slowed down the second half. So the last 12 hours. But he obviously had the number to chase. So he knew what my yeah. time was. Plus, he's
0: doing it in Harvard. Yeah, he was probably, doing, <laughs> he's probably yeah. on an IV he trip. Was, They're he was. him full of all sorts of images. Do you know
1: what? I was I was watching because they put all pictures up of it and he had this massive industrial fan there and he had all the gels <laughs> and Gatorade and stuff. they are doing then, it with Darren yeah. behind <laughs> yeah. the door. Yeah, in, in, in Loudon Grange. But what that then did, that then sparked the, the dream of being an athlete
0: Did it bring about like a spiritual, like, because in a way, right? Because if we think about the first half of this story, lots of people are subject to environments where criminality is the only option. And I think that's a social problem. My personal belief is that's more of a social problem than an individual problem. Lots of people end up in prison. Not hardly anybody then ends up discovering they've got some incredible gift. Or maybe someone will write something incredible. Someone will start a new career path. You hear... People stories of people actually genuinely being rehabilitated, although one sometimes questions if the prison system is really about rehabilitation because they're, you know, economically squeezed like all public institutions, although I know a lot of prisons are increasingly private, and it becomes much more about just punishment, seclusion, separation, rather than a genuine rehabilitation. So your story is very, very rare, but it seems to me that, like... That you had a, you know, well, evidently you had a unique set of skills that had previously never been discovered, and were only discovered because of the denial of all options. I like what you said there, John, about like prisons an entirely constructed reality. You know, because uh, I feel like about all sub. I once I wrote in a book, like, you know, I said like obviously I said, from the point of view of someone who's never been in prison, there are, you know, maximum security prisons, then category A, B, C, until like quite open prisons, but goes then then there's just the prison of ordinary life. We all live in constructed yeah. realities yeah. held together
1: by our just, beliefs. You know what, Russell? Well, I found that since I've been released from prison, um, sometimes I have conversations with people and I can't believe how they imprison themselves in their own minds. They set limitations on themselves. So like, I'll give you an example. When, when I was in prison, um, when I set that record, my dream at that moment was to be an athlete, that was it. I absolutely wholeheartedly believed it. I remember Darren um, gave me a book called The Secret. It was about mm. the laws of attraction and about cutting negative influence out of your life and what you verbalize and put it into the universe, it will come back. And I'd visualize every day that I'd be an athlete. I went down the library, I started reading books about all these Olympians and I could connect. Like I was reading books about these human beings that I'd never seen before. And I shared the characteristics the drive, the will to win and wanting to be successful. So the attributes that I always I always I always had since a little kid that I the only people I saw that had those same attributes applied them into crime, I realised that actually when I put them into physical activity and into being an athlete, they could make my life. That was destroying my life when I when I put those characteristics into into that world of being a criminal and then if I flick them and put them into sport, their massive attributes would allow me to be successful. And I, and I can remember reading these books to these people and I was like, I couldn't believe, honestly, I know it might sound sort of bizarre to some of the people that will listen to this, but I had never been exposed to like these sorts of people before. I didn't realise, like, uh, athletes. Steve Redgrave yeah, or something. Yeah, Steve Redgrave, like they've all become new people to me, like Steve Redgrave, James Cracknell, Lance Armstrong. Like I remember, they were powerful. Like I can remember Darren would print off qu- um, quotes and, and I know sort of with how Lance's career ended up going, but at that moment in time, he was like the, he was the pinnacle of endurance athletes. And Darren printed off a quote about um, quitting and I remember when I do these records that this quote was in front of me. I'd I'd I would just I'd I'd just read these these quotes and passages from his book, and and it, and it and it and it would, and it would drive me. And that was where my my motivation then become to being an athlete, and and I believed it. And and I remember people would laugh at me. They like thought I was a fantasy. I was doing two life sentences in prison. Um, they thought I they thought I was I, I was a Walter Mitty. Like I was I wasn't in the real world. Yeah. Um, and even on my first parole hearing. I can remember sitting in front of a, of a Crown Court judge, retired, that had to sit in. And um, he said to me, what are you gonna do when you get released from prison? I said, I'm gonna be an athlete. And he laughed and he went to me, I've never heard anyone in 20 years of sitting on parole board hearings, turn around and say, when I come out of prison, i are gonna be an athlete. And I absolutely believed in every ounce of my soul that that is what I would do when I got released from prison. And he didn't direct my release because he said my release plan wasn't based in reality, <laughs> but he did transfer me to an open prison.
0: this is a partial victory that one when you're actually in the you know like when you're actually rowing right in the midst of it how are you when it becomes too challenging and you feel like I can't do it anymore I feel like it's too much pain where is the resource coming from to keep you continuing what is that
1: that feeling so at that moment in my life um, it was all about uh, not being a loser that that was what motivated me. It was there. There was there was a police officer that arrested me when I was a kid, and I remember um, when 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 they were driving me to the police station, and he told me to look out the window, and he said, "Because you won't be seeing this for a long time," and it, and it always stuck in my mind. It always stuck in my mind, and and that used to motivate me in those moments of pain on that round machine. And I mean, like sometimes it was excruciating pain, but I've always found. Um, that motivate me to keep pushing. It was to, it was to prove them wrong that I wasn't just a piece of shit and I wasn't a loser. That I could achieve something in my life and I could I could be something else other than that. Mm-hmm. But what I really and I go I it might go a little bit too deep now, but I always used to, I find physical pain in training a test. So like when for instance the sport I do today, Ironman. Oh, yeah. um, when I get off the bike, so I swim three point eight k, I ride one hundred and twelve miles, and then I run a full distance marathon and 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 if you look at me like in relation to a lot of Ironman athletes I'm quite broad and quite muscular in because some of them are like obviously the, 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 so it's the hardest one day endurance race in the world but then when you look at my marathon how quick I can run off a bike is normally I'm normally one of the quickest marathon runners in an Ironman like normally it's there are people quicker than me like well, a lot to do a marathon in? in in an Ironman I, my PB is 303 mm-hmm.
0: I 112
1: miles, and then I get off, and I, that, that's my PB. I run that in uh, Germany, and and again, there are professional men that have done the sport for years and years and years and stuff, and, that, and they're a bit quicker than me, um, like at running. But when I do, when I'm on that run, and I get to the back end, like the last 12 miles, like I can't describe to you the pain, how you start feeling, like your body is screaming. For you to stop because at that point you've been continuously exercising for like seven hours right and you've been pushing your body to like 80 percent of its max effort so if you imagine like a battery and it's slowly ebbing away of energy you get to a point where you're on fumes and then it's literally mind over matter you are you are you are in a place and it's the only time where i feel one with my body it's amazing like you you go through this process and i and i said this to an athlete the other day at diamond it's like you 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 it's like you go internalized, your whole body just seems to sink. And then you can even notice it like when your energy is ebbing away and you have to take like a, a caffeine gel. And the minute you hit it, you you take it in and you can feel it in your body. You can feel it pull the energy out. And it is it just feels it feels amazing. Like I feel my mind and body are one. But that only comes from sort of uh pushing my body that hard through the pain. But I find that very addictive. You can, right, you
0: enjoy that state of total awareness that you must have started exploring when you were doing them burpees in the <coughs> cell by that little air vent. Say so yesterday, when I was down at the gym yeah. doing pull-ups, right, when it, like, assisted by a band, mark you, like, when it gets to, like, on the third set, six, and I'm like, oh, this is too hard. Like, I feel like when that feeling of failure comes, like a physical failure I hate that feeling and I feel like the rest of my body is contorting to try and do it. I don't feel like that I can reach into a deeper thing and transfer it to the body. Do you think that it's different when you're working for strength increasing things or something? Yeah, I, th-
1: yeah, I do. I do. I, I think because I think what we're talking about here is very much more, it's more this, the mind and the spirituality. like like Because what it is, is, you're going. it's the process. You've got a lot of time to analyse where you're at. So when you're doing endurance sport, for instance, you can verbalize what you're doing. So when I do strength training, it is, it's, it's, it's short, it's, it's anaerobic, it's like bang, 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 bang. You haven't really got that time for that self-awareness to talk yourself through it. Um, but I think with failure, no, no, no. with the, I, say, I say failure, I don't really like to use the word, I think it's growth. It's an area no, of growth gross. and you can always improve. So you need to find that point of where you can't go any further for that to then occur. So then you can then grow from that. And yes. you know where your limits are to a degree where you can then push through it the next time. And the next time, and it's it's all about strategies and the way I sort of the way I cope with with pushing my body that hard for, for that period of time. But it's it is a, it is an amazing journey. So you're not
0: entirely thinking about competing with other people, and neither are you actually cutting off from your body. It's not like you're going right, just keep going and no. ignore these feelings in the body. You entirely go into it, and through entirely going into it and accepting it, you can no,
1: endure I, it. I don't even care where. Um, like I, I remember when I raced uh, last year in the Netherlands, I was running next to this German guy, and he couldn't speak English good well. And we were running next to each other on the marathon, and his Garmin had packed up, and he asked me what we were running, and I um and I told him how quick we were running. At that point, we were running like just under a sub three-hour marathon, and we was we were probably about twenty k. And and the moment, but up to that point. It was just this, this sort of, I didn't care. I, 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 honestly, Like, I, I'm very competitive when I'm in that mode. But then suddenly, when you get to, it just all goes. At the beginning of the race, you're competitive. You're like, I, I, I want to finish as high as I can. And suddenly, you're in this moment of suffering with another human being. Identical amounts of pain, basically. You're pushing your body, identical amounts at the same rate. And then when, when I said to him um, about how quick we were running, because his garment broke, it, his, his mind just went. and He started walking. Because he didn't think he could run that fast. He, was over, he thought he was overrunning because he didn't, obviously, I don't know, he might not have trained his body. But he just demonstrated to me psychologically the impact that had. On the minute I gave him an awareness of the running speed, he just stopped. Wow. But he, he was running that pace before I caught him. And he mm. was running next to me for a couple of K. And he, and, he, and he seemed quite fine. He couldn't speak great English. He was broken, but he didn't seem like he was in any sort of real distress. And he said, how quick are we running? And I said, yeah. and then literally he just stopped and started walking.
0: Right, that unleashed something. That's fascinating. So tell me, what are you planning to do now that you find yourself in this position? Because like, there's obviously been little beats in the story you missed out because you went from doing that five-year to a double life sentence.
1: What happened there? So I, um, when, when I got released from prison when I was a kid, mm. I, I ended up coming out when I was 20. Um, and then I was out for two years. And, and I was living sort of, uh, the only way you can explain it, I, I was even worse. Prison made me even worse when I got released. And I was even more driven to make more money. I was even more consumed by greed. My criminal network grew even more because when I was in prison with serious criminals that were from the continent, um, I went out to the Netherlands and then I went down to Spain and I saw. And then when I was down there, I was just leading that typical existence of a, of a criminal. And I and I always say this like that drug, drinking, parting to excess. It's escape from reality because you know what's coming. Anyone that commits crime in their subconscious knows eventually. The door's gonna come through, and you're gonna go back to prison, or you're gonna, or you gonna die young? And and I remember my mum once said to me that I was living life in the fast lane, and she went, "You will crash and, and burn." And obviously, your mum, like, you don't think your mum knows what she's talking about, but she was a hundred percent right. And I um I come back to United Kingdom for uh, a week for a party, because I, I had no intentions to live ever again, and um and I walked into a surveillance operation with another guy. Um, he asked me if I wanted to commit a robbery with him, and I agreed. And what I didn't realize is he had a hundred man police surveillance operation watching him. And I, um, I ended up getting arrested with him the, the following day. and oh. it, it, But Russell, it was the best decision I've ever, I ever made in my life. Even to today, it was the best decision I ever chose to make that day agreeing to do that with him and getting arrested and going to prison and getting the two life sentences. And, and, and because it, it changed, it, it's made me the person I am today. How did it, you end up not serving all that time? What happened? Mate? So when, when, I, when I first got arrested, um, I basically, they really did change the game the second time. Like they made me what they classed then as a double category, a um, high escape risk prisoner. So I couldn't be kept. So my escape had to be made possible again. Um, but this time I was a grown man. So I was 22 years old. So I couldn't be kept in normal prison um, environments. So they kept me on something called a HSU, which is a high security prison unit in Belmarsh Prison. And it's a prison within a prison. And when you traveled outside court, you had to go with armed police um, to stop people from trying to break you out of the prison van. And then when when I got to Belmarsh and they turned around and said, you're going on to this HSU. And they explained to me what it was. So at that moment in time, there was 90,000 prisoners in prison in the United Kingdom. And out of that, there was only 28 of us that were deemed to be such a high escape risk, Bloody we we hell. couldn't be kept. That wasn't because so to to be on this unit, you again you had to have the money, the means, the capability, and the determination to escape from lawful custody or, or a threat to national security. I wasn't a threat to national security, but they said I ticked the other four boxes. And then how come
0: you're vague about the uh, sort of names and affiliations of your early life? Is that out of respect? Or yeah, sort of a- it is
1: because my life's moved on. I don't know what these people are doing with their lives anymore. Um, mm. I I don't know. I don't know, like I've like when I say I've disconnected, I disconnected when I was in prison, which was like I got released in 2012, and I, and I disconnected in 2009 when I went through the process of of all the records. I didn't want to be around those people no more. For you to be
0: like uh, out of 90,000 prisoners on a list of 28, I have to assume that it's like connections that are like pretty meaningful because I don't imagine they afford that to many people. That I imagine the rest of the people in that 28 is normally. Like terrorist yeah, yeah. connections and stuff so, like so, that. So when I went on to rather the rather un-
1: organised crime, even. So so when I went on to the um the HSU, there was basically uh, the 21-7 suicide bombers, um Sheikh Obal Hamza, um that was waiting to fight an extradition to the America, and yeah. there was another guy in there that was just convicted of a, a contract murder, and I remember um, when they said you're going to this HSU, and they and they and they took me across the prison in this little van, and then. It was the most. Um, we used to call it the Bat Cave. There was no natural light. It was. It was. It was like a bunker. That's the only way you can really explain it. Like on the exercise yard, there was so much anti-helicopter wire, and and it was like a it was like a hamster cage. Does that make sense? Like you look up and you could see the sky, but it was so heavily netted with with anti-helicopter wire that you you could see the sky, but it just it was still. It felt like you were still inside. And the prison officer said to me, he knew obviously I'd been in the police station for three days, and he said, look. You, you got a decision, you either bang up or you go out and take exercise. You only get exercise for like 45 minutes a day. So I said, obviously I'll take the exercise. So he took me out and then all the doors in this unit, um, there's no keys, it's all electronic gates because you can't take hostages like from the prison officers mm. and it's all airlock doors. And then um, they walk you downstairs and then suddenly you had this feeling like you was outside because the air temperature had changed. But when I looked up again, you got this, 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 this corridor when you're outside but it's all this anti-helicopter wire and netting at the top. And then they walk you out to this yard and there's a prison officer standing in his own little box. So you couldn't get to him. And they press this electric gate and it opened and I walked out to this yard. And then, like I said, I, I saw um, Abu Hamza and, and the 21 su- suicide bombers. And then I thought, I, I am in a lot of trouble. Like I, I knew I knew they was gonna absolutely hammer me <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when, I, um, when I went to court. And they kept me on that unit for two and a half years. Um, I went back through the process, the journey of the, the cell circuits, the reading books. I thought I was going to get off at one point. Um, anyway, I, w- I went to trial um, and just for my trial, I ended up going guilty because I knew the evidence was overwhelming. And and I remember my solicitor said to me before we went up to get sentenced, he went, no, I'm not going to lie. He went, I think they're going to throw the book at you um, because you're so young. And I went, okay. I went, what do you reckon I want to get? And he went, there's a good chance, 50-50, you might get life. And I was like, oh, okay. And then when, when I went up to court, there was armed police outside the court and stuff um, and the judge told me to stand and the moment he started talking at the beginning I knew he was going to hammer time. me. Yeah, yeah. He, he he basically, what people don't really understand even the prison officers was actually quite surprised by the length of how long I got for what I was convicted of because it was conspiracy. There was no actual victims. Yeah. Nothing, nothing happened. It, it was, was a concept. Yeah. It was a plan. <laughs> it was planning and, um, and, he, and he basically stated that my links to criminal underworld were so extensive at such a young age. Um, I already had previous convictions for conspiracy to rob. And he believed that I would always pose a danger to the public. And my that, that risk had to be negated. So he said, I'm going to sentence you to life imprisonment um, with a minimum tariff of five years. So what he said was, if he was going to give me a fixed term that day, fixed term, so it was a, like 20 years, whatever, he would have given me 10 years in prison. But he said, because I'm going to give you the life sentence, I'm going to set the tariff at five years. So I had to serve a minimum of five years before I can even be considered to be released. But no one gets out. When you get sentenced to life, they know you aren't getting out on your minimum tariff. Because basically, like now, for instance, I'm serving the remainder of my sentence in the community. So I served... I served just over eight years of that five years, literally, like literally, in prison eight and eight and a half years, just under nine.
0: Two and a half in that HSU yeah. nightmare, yeah. and then subsequent. Yeah. Where was the And rest? then it was,
1: uh, and then I was kept in another maximum security prison in um, Yorkshire, Full Sutton, it was called. And then I got transferred out of there to another prison in Nottingham, and then I got moved to a semi-open prison, and I served the remaining year and a bit in an open prison. So when they when I got the life sentences, um yeah it was, it was very harsh for, for for the for for the for
0: the index the conventional view is that the, the such harsh sentences are meted out for the type of crime that feels like an a sort of a threat to the establishment you know like in sort of gangland type crimes are punished severely because it's considered a threat even though it's like oh it's not like no one was murdered nothing gruesome or graphic or awful happened but it's power it's to sort of t- to send a sign that that kind of the, to the world of organized crime that if you are caught it's going to be terrible long sentences is that the, yeah how you no, see yeah it?
1: totally like r- r- yeah again like if you if you go if you go to quite a lot of maximum security prisons there's there a lot of guys that are serving the biggest prison sentences you tend to normally find that uh, they're in there for armed robbery or drug trafficking you, so
0: you, you're serving this sentence still then
1: Yes. In the community. Yes. How?
0: Where is the person, like, when you're sort of, like... Obviously, you've discovered this ability, this gift in yourself, and uh, it's awakened in you a kind of a spiritual awareness, or in a sense, an awareness that seemed like it was present even in your discontentment when you were a little kid and your sort of sense that there was more to life. And, it, you know, like, there's... Obviously, as you tell the story now, you are able to retrospectively trace back that awareness. Um, but where do you feel like having had such a hard time at the hands of the system, you're quite willing to sort of take personal responsibility yeah. for it. Like feel, you don't sort of feel like, oh, well, no, it's a corrupt society. No, no, no,
1: no. I, I, I'm like that with everything in my life though, because I feel like having, I've seen it, my, I, I've witnessed it, I've seen it with people that the the only person that that negative energy will ever affect is yourself. Um, and I feel like to grow and develop and move forward with my life I can't have that hatred in me because yeah. I'm never going to move forward. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to achieve. So for instance, I, 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 I'm, I've I'm, i got into a position in life now where I, I'm doing stuff with, with political parties to Ooh. try to implement change through the prison system. So, so what going. type of change? So there's, there's a lot of projects. Um, the twinning campaign. So the Premier League football, mm. Premiership football uh, uh, are going to twin up. So at the moment, 35 Premiership football clubs and League One and championship clubs are going to twin up with their local prisons and they're going to deliver qualifications to inmates in prison. coaching and that? Yeah, yeah, coaching, um, employability, qualifications, MVQs. That's brilliant. And hopefully open up some pathways so when young offenders and offenders go through these programmes, that then, which is the most important part, is when they get released from prison, that there's pathways into employment Mm. and stuff that they're passionate about and and, and to try and change the system, but through sport. Mm. I'm a massive, massive, massive advocate and, and passionate believer, like I said to you before, there was 28 men in this country that were deemed to be such a high escape, risk we had to be segregated out of the system. And even when I was in that unit, I remember someone from the Home Office once come in and I was trying to get off that unit to, and, and go to, back onto the main prison. And I said to her, why am I kept in here with people that are convicted of terrorism or waiting to go on like, for terrorist attacks? And she said to me, John, people like you don't change. And she said, I know the first opportunity you get to run for that wall, you'll take it. If I've managed to turn my life around through sport and give me direction and, and, and positive role models, and it's, it's changed the whole dynamic of my life, every single one of those people in prison today, can as they are no different to me and they can take that same opportunity if they want it and turn their lives around as well. And that's why I'm so passionate, Russell, because it, I really do understand what sport can do for people's lives. I really, really understand it. It's not just so much the physical aspects of it, but it's, I stumbled across this. I didn't realise. It wasn't intentional. When I got released from prison, I joined a rowing club, and I went down to this rowing club, and I remember I was deeply embarrassed and ashamed of my past, because I started hanging out with these guys. I went to the Olympics, doctors, nurses, people that were doing amazing things with their lives, like ultramarathon runners, people that climbed up Mount Everest. And I looked at myself, I thought, what have I really done with my life? Like I was embarrassed. I didn't tell anyone I set any of these records, because I thought they might go and Google, and they Google me. These like these headlines will pop up from my past, so I didn't tell no one. They just saw me as this guy that went to the rain club every day. He's really hardworking. People reached out to me. They helped me. Did they I, think he was good? Yeah, they did. Like, they, they they just thought they took me on face value. They just took me as John, this guy that was at the rain club every morning first there, committed, really wanted to get on. People invite. I, I was going. I remember. I, I can remember being in the changing rooms one day, and, and obviously it's quite diverse. You got you got your elite athletes. And then you had like some of the recreational rowers that remembers since like since the club was created, like eighteen eighty eight, and they were like, old men, and they and I remember they were sitting there and they they were, they were talking about uh, prosecutions and stuff at the old Bailey. Like they were they were judges and barristers and like, they, they worked for, they were QC's. Amazing. And but I was developing these relationships with people, and then and then what happened? My my past ended up coming out, and mate, I cannot. It was the most humbling experience I've ever 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 had in my life. Like the amount of people within the rowing community that reached out to me and said, you know what, it broke our preconceptions of what we thought people would be like that was in prison. Because they took me on face value as a person I'd become and not as my backstory or what I had done years ago. And I remember it was the most humbling experience. And that's, again, I stumbled across that going into a different world. Um, and I went into a sporting world. But those people, they, they helped me, and they, they helped nurture me. And then when they found out about my past, it wasn't like they went, oh, get away, get away, get away. They actually embraced me even more and helped me even more. And that meant so much to me. And I know, again, you can replicate that again and again and again with a lot of these kids where you can get them in and use the hook, the sport as the hook and carrot, get them in. Because a lot of them are massively disenfranchised with society, completely. Yeah, I bet, mate. They, they've got no, they've, like, Russell, it, it, it even, like, I can't tell you, mate, like, I go into prisons and I talk to children, like, I mean children, and you're sitting there, and, it, and mate, it kills me. It ma it make it make, it, re, it kills me. You're sitting there with a kid that's 15 years old, and they're in there for life for murder, and you hear how they've done it, and then you're seeing girl, little girls that have been sexually abused, and they're in there for assaulting men, and stuff. and you, they've 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 been so failed, so deeply failed by the system, and they've then like acted out, and then they've ended up doing terrible things because yes. it's been so normalised to them. Yes. It's been so normalised to them, and, and it kills me when I go into these places. And you just see these kids throwing their lives away through looking up to the wrong role models. And and, and a lot of the time, they're being encouraged into doing these bad things. Do you know what I mean? Like people are actively encouraging them into doing it.
0: I recognise that, I recognise that. Also, there is a sort of, look, let me try and see if I can put this thing across to you in case it's a complicated idea. You've achieved this, uh, like something incredible, Part of which because, you know, you've had an innate ability, like, you know, just like someone who's brilliant at football or brilliant whatever. They didn't give themselves that ability. They just had that ability. They discovered it. Possibly they worked hard at it or whatever. You know? And now you've turned your life around from uh, a life of, sort of criminality and incarceration to one of sort of self-development, spirituality, mentorship, offering out a uh, helping hand and illuminating pathways for other people that have committed offences. But... So much of what you experienced in your early life was about social conditions you know like the loss of your father before you were born proper uh, like like you said your mum's minimum wage florist these are sort of like economic conditions that are not just happening on an individual level they're happening on a mass 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 scale and like you know like you said 90,000 prisoners in the UK at that time and, and now when you talk about anecdotally about meeting people that are in these institutions it's like oh my god it's just because I had the wrong conditions the wrong role models you know you sort of the more the older I get anyway and the more I learn the less I believe in the idea that people are bad i just think people's circumstances take them in certain directions people certain opportunities and you know like so the idea that individuals are responsible for their own destiny but i think that is partly true that like you know like that we have something in us and maybe if we're lucky through circumstance we'll realize that thing and we'll get to live a great life but what i want to be careful of is all the people that aren't that don't have the abilities that you've had like but I've still had the shit hmm. past yep, yep, that you've had. Yep. Like, no, that, that can that can only be changed on a like you've said, a systemic yes, level. Yeah, like totally. no private prisons, an attitude of rehabilitation, well, a willingness to help. Do uh, you
1: see an appetite for that kind of change? I, I, I think that you have to you have to you have to think like prevention is better than cure, for mm. instance. Like so I do these programmes with the Premier with Premier League football, the twinning campaign and, and David Dean who is the vice chairman of arsenal oh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was his it was his he it was it's his it's he's amazing it's he's amazing and and he's and he's using his platform to galvanize the football community to 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 use this program to change people's lives but prevention is better secure and you need to stop you need to give young people opportunities where they don't feel the need to go and make those bad decisions yeah. in their lives you need to create those opportunities further back and and a lot of the stuff that I do in the community with a lot of programs and projects again it's even I even get amazed by the disparity in wealth and how bad some of these young children have got it. Like they've got no opportunities whatsoever yeah. and no exposure to positive role models. So, like for instance, with all the community centres within London being absolutely savagely cut and all these youth youth workers losing all their jobs, what's been created as an environment where a virus has been allowed to as uh, uh, to attack these cities or attack London and all these major cities and. Austerity's meant police cuts, and then there's no mm. police then to even police these areas. So then kids aren't doing anything. So they're hanging out in the streets. They've got nowhere to go. And there's this there's this big pro- problem at the moment within in the cities of uh, chicken shop grooming, where kids are sitting outside the chicken shop, hanging around on a Tuesday night or for Wednesday night after school. They've got nothing to do. They've got nowhere to go. And some of the horrific stories I've heard from police officers about how these children then are basically. Someone else, an older gang member's buying them some food, some chicken and chips, chicken and chips. That goes on for a couple of weeks. And eventually, at the end of the week, it's like, you owe me £30 for all that food I've bought you. Can't afford to pay them the money. So he say, don't worry. Just take that package up the road. They take the package up the road. Their friend robs the stuff. They come back. They say, oh, that was £1,000 worth of crack. You now owe me £1,000. Kid can't afford to pay it. So the kid's now then effectively groomed into a gang. So, they, But people don't realise this stuff happens and these kids are then sent out into the suburbs and they're sitting down in safe houses with phone lines delivering drugs all over up and down on, on train systems and, and they're being basically manipulated and groomed. They're, they're, they're literally leaving school and these people are predatorily grooming these young children into committing criminal offences but this all stems back Russell mm. to again the lack of opportunity a lack of investment into I these agree areas.
0: it's a very elaborate it's an mm. elaborate system isn't it mm. like first of all you've got to do the chicken and chips then you've got to do the fake robbery of the crack package then but but and I also when you're thinking that this is just out of my mind like, I, like this is always my perspective John that you know Even if you're not preyed upon by criminality, there are other corporate and economic systems that will prey upon you anyway and put you in debt. And even if, like, you know, see, the thing is, you've had an extreme life, you know? Some people don't have that extreme life, but they still live lives that are where they're in constructed realities, where they have no chance of freedom, where they don't get to interact with their essence. I think you're an amazing role model for a number of reasons, partly because of the extremity. He makes it a really vivid and brilliant story. But the thing that I am keen to investigate is that it doesn't get used as a story as any individual can themselves pull themselves up by their bootstraps if they've only got the gumption. And we don't need to worry about the systems that create poverty and crime and whole generations of people just sequestered off, you know, and not ever given opportunity. And prisoners like, you know, like my friends, I'm a recovering drug addict. So like at my whole lens of looking at that, my mates sort of say like, Prisons aren't like, you know, 90% of people in there, they're just drug addicts. They're like, you know, most of the crime that's committed at a lower level, not organized crime or crime Mm. that's related to sort of ideology. They're there because to deal with their habit. You know the vast majority of people. You know, and they're not bad people either. They're just people that circumstances meant life's too painful. I'm going to have to take drugs. I wonder what, what would have happened if instead of the first mentor you encountered being a person who says, "Do us a cup of tea," and then drops you a score, if it had been someone that would, you know, been interested in sport or been interested I've in got, spirituality.
1: You know, I've who got, knows? I've got no doubt. I, I genuinely haven't because again, I, I I would always say in my own case, I always I always say I had I had the attributes, but again, it's the mm. mistake. It's what and again. It goes back to stuff like when I, when I go out into the community, I do stuff at community centers, and I, you work with young children in schools. The talent that is in these environments is frightening how it's not being given the opportunity to grow yeah, and develop. it's awful. And it makes me so fucking angry when I see it. And these kids just have not got the opportunities to, to even, to even, t- people. When, when you say opportunities sometimes, people get very confused and they think it's money and it's not. It's about having an awareness. Like, yeah. like I've done stuff with kids where they're like 14 years old and they've never travelled from East London to South West London. And one day, we took this kid from a pupil referral unit, so as a kid that's been excluded from mainstream education. he come across on a minibus, and they brought him across to Hammersmith. And my friend's got a rowing club there, um, Full and Reach, and it's a community rowing club. So it's, it's to basically get all the local state schools, give him access to the waterways in the Thames. And this kid well, um, asked if he could go to Tesco's, right? So one of the coaches, Megan Jackson, has walked this kid to the Tesco's round the back from the rowing club. And he went to her, this is like being on holiday. And she took him to Tesco's. And then when he was in there, he was like, he'd never seen self-checkout. Because where he's grown up, there was no self-checkout because people were stealing stuff. <laughs> and, and 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 she started crying because she just couldn't comprehend how this young kid at that age yeah. had never travelled. That's at, just in East London. That's yeah, not like in another that's, that's, country. It's not another country. It's on the doorstep. And, and it's frightening. And I could go on and on and on with the stories. And again, it's, 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 they're so limited. It, and, and again, sometimes it's a generational thing now as well. That's what the problem is. So I've gone to schools before and, and some of the pupils are so academically intelligent. And then when teachers are saying to mum and dad, like, well, look, they could go to uni. They think universities, they're all up north. They don't realise that you can go to university in London. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it's, and, it, and it makes me so sad that these children aren't getting that same opportunity. So if I can use my platform and what I'm trying to do now to create those opportunities through through partners that I work with and open up pathways for these kids, and, and they do. like I've gone in and done some corporate stuff before where the brands and, and businesses have allowed kids then to go up and, and basically do work experience days. So like a, um, a group of kids from a school in Essex went up to a TV production company in Chiswick and they couldn't believe like these camera men walking around in trainers and t-shirts and flip-flops. Like they was like, this is like people, they just thought people that had jobs wore suits. This is amazing. So you're, what you've
0: done is you're dedicating your life now to, to mentorship, forming different partnerships and making, uh, giving young, uh, other young people that may not have had opportunities, the, ch- the chances to build different lives. Beautiful. What an incredible,
1: incredible story. How long have you been out now? Uh, I've been out uh, the end of 2012, so five and a half years
0: Five and a half years. Look at the life you're living. How incredible, mate! Oh, but do you know what,
1: mate? Everyone can live it. That's what makes me so sad. Like I, I, I. Sometimes, like the other day, I was um, I, 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 I was on, I was on uh, social media. I was on Twitter, and a uh, coincidence, this, this, this news article's flipped up, and I was, um, I was in prison with a guy, and his story. I saw his face on this, on his tweet, and I've clicked on it, and it was from a newspaper, and um, and he was killed, and and he just had a baby. And it made me feel so sad for him that he, he come out of prison after having all that time, and he come out and got killed. And and he just had a baby as well. And I, it made me realize how far i had moved on with my life. Mm. But I just felt so sad inside that because while I'm living, again, I always say, I am no different to anyone else. It's decision, a choice, I made it. Like, you just, you just have to believe in something else and it can always get better. It doesn't matter how deep that hole is, you can get out of it. If you genuinely want to change your life, you can do it, and it is hard. Like I come out, I had no, I didn't really have any friends other than like my, my old social circle. I, I left them behind, and I joined a rowing club. And I was fortunate. Was that, was. that easily done? Um, it was hard. I'll be honest with you; it was very hard because I developed, you developed close relationships with people. Mm. I shared amazing experiences with certain people from years ago, but I knew for me to move on with my life, I couldn't have one step in, one foot step in, one footstep. I had to make a clean break and completely detach. Some people might say I was selfish, but I needed to do that for me yeah. to go forward. Even Russell, when I first got out, I remember like I wouldn't even watch any films that had any sort of crime element to it. I, didn't, I wanted to just completely shut that side of my life away. I didn't want to think about it anymore. It's only like recently where you do sit there and you do watch films. Like, but at the beginning, I just wanted to detach from that world. But, mm. but I, again, I am no different to anyone else. And, and if you genuinely want to change your life and you want to move forward and, and achieve something, Sometimes you have to, it has to be hard and it has to be difficult. Like I said, when I come out of prison, I had no money, but I believed in myself. I knew it would pay off eventually and I knew I just had to keep doing what I was doing and, and my, my life shaped and evolved since that point and I started going into schools and they were profound moments in my life about giving back. That, that's what life is about. The essence of life isn't about you. Like everything I'd done in my life up to the age of like for 26, 20, sorry, from 26 when I, when I realised I was good at sport, it was all about me. It was about mm. me as a kid making, being a millionaire. Then it was, and being an athlete is inherently a very selfish thing. Yeah, yeah. It's about you, you winning at all costs. That's yeah, it, yeah, yeah. me, 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 me. And, and I come out of prison and it was about me being a successful athlete and you get put on a pedestal and then suddenly you can have these massive character flaws. But because you're very good at <laughs> chucking a ball, or kicking a ball, people just, oh, we, we, we won't focus on that. But then, <laughs> they, but, 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 but that, it's the truth. And it was only when I started going into schools and seeing the reaction kids were having on me because kids, kids can connect to me because kids can see through bullshit. So when you stand up and you go and talk to young people and you start trying to talk like them and you're pretending you're from the same area as them, like they see through that bullshit. I've, I've done assembly after assembly, gone into prisons, spoke to kids time and time again. So to me, this is a norm. I go in, I talk and you've got like two, three hundred kids just looking at you for an hour. And then it's when I leave the head teachers and the teachers go like I have never seen them that quiet. And then afterwards the the emails and the responses you get from them like I realised at that moment that is what my purpose is in life. It wasn't that is what I was put here to do. Good, that's a good purpose. Do you meditate? I don't, I really... I'm, you best
0: crack on with that, mate.
1: I, I find my meditation through exercise. I find that that's where you I You've got to on. do additional meditation, <laughs> sitting silently, quietly.
0: Who knows what will come I through know, you? Who I knows know, what
1: will come through? I could come back in five years' time. We could be down another path. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, yeah, you'll be robed up, swamied. <laughs> I'll be just a beard by then and a little ball of light.
1: <laughs> oh, nice
0: one, John. Lovely chatting to you. Thank you. We've got to wrap it up. I no. could talk to you all day. You're fantastic. Cheers. Thank you so well much. Well done, mate. Thank you. Nice one. Thank you for listening to that, you glorious swine. I hope you enjoyed the John McAvoy episode there. I learned a lot. It's an extreme life. It's an extreme experience. John's on a mission. He's a fascinating man, and he's doing some wonderful stuff. Remember, let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand, or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with hashtag under the skin. Next week, Fern Cotton whose fantastic podcast, Happy Places, when I say inspired hours in some ways, I mean we've nicked bits of it. But Fern is a friend and I think a important voice in the world of personal development and in helping us to understand more, what do I want to say, colloquial and accessible ways of thinking about spirituality and mental health. It's a great episode, I've already made it. so I know how good it is, you're going to love it thanks for listening, go and get Mentors you can get it off of Amazon or you can get it off my website and also why don't you have a look at Rebirth You know, if you're going to dedicate your life to me as I hoped you might then uh, try to consume all of these various products and uh, subscribe to the podcast review the book, just really get involved in this community on the off chance that one day we start forming physical communities that form a a confederacy and then a challenge to the status quo and those of you that have done good reviews will be looked upon very favorably in this new peculiar utopia thanks very much Bye bye